group of children were lining up for lunch in the cafeteria of a primary church school. At the head of the table was a bowl of juicy apples. The supervising teacher wrote a note and placed it next to the apples. Take only one. God is watching. At the other end of the table was a large pile of chocolate cookies. A child had written a note and put it next to the plate of cookies. Take as many as you want. God is watching the apples. (laughs) The story is funny. Because we know that God sees and knows all. And just as he did, in fact, in the following story that we will study this morning, it takes place in a familiar place where the human story began with the first man and the first woman. What happened there has devastated human history. We will begin that story by remembering a world that was created very good and a garden that was even better. God created the man and then placed him in the Garden of Eden. Eden means delight, and it was a delight with every imaginable fruit. It had everything except one thing, someone for the man to enjoy it with. God realized that when he said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Up to this point, God had pronounced each day of creation as good. This is the first time that he said something was not good. By saying this, he did not mean that his creation was flawed. What God meant was that he knew it was incomplete. And although he knew that, he did not act immediately to fix it. Instead, he proceeded to help the man to discover his need. To accomplish that, God brings a sampling of all of Eden's animals to the man and tells him to name them. After each species is named, the man begins to realize something. He is alone. Although his relationship with God is wonderful, the man naturally craved the fellowship of another of his kind, someone with whom to share and explore paradise. In time, he would have felt the loneliness on his own, but God has accelerated his discovery so that now the man feels the full force of its impact. After this realization, God caused him to fall into a deep sleep so that he could finish his work. As the man slept, God created a companion who was suitable for him. She would be a soul. Like a mirror, she would reflect back all of the man's soulfulness of mind, will, and emotions. She would share his triune nature of body, soul, and spirit. In other words, she would be a companion who is just right for him. Indeed, she would be suitable for him, and she would be a help for him. Since in some translations the Hebrew word is translated as helper instead of help, some think that it confers a subordinate position for her, like an assistance, an assistant. However, the Hebrew word used here is the word ezer. 
Now, one of the ways to understand what a particular word in the Bible means is to look at other verses in the Bible where the word is also used. When we do that, we find that throughout the Bible, the word azer does not remotely imply subordination. If subordination was intended, then there are other Hebrew words that could have been used here that would denote a subordinate helper. None of those were used here to describe the woman. Instead, when we survey the Bible for the Hebrew word ezer, we find that it is used 21 times. It is used twice concerning the creation of the woman, three times in regards to humans helping other humans, like a Calvary coming to a rescue. And 16 times, Azer is used in reference to God being our help. For example, Psalms 121, 1-2. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help, Azer, come from? My help, Azer, comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In every case, whether it be from God or another human, this help, Azer, is understood to be a strong ally. Therefore, God created the woman to be a strong ally, a help, an Azer, and she will do what only one human soul can do for another. She will rescue him from his loneliness. She will also be God's final creation, and she will be created in the most unusual way of all. Instead of repeating the same steps as in the creation of the man, God took some material from the man's side, around his rib area. It was a special miracle, because no other creature was created like that. God made a woman from a man. Therefore, the man and the woman mutually share the man's essence. When the man first saw the woman, he recognized that fact and called her woman because he knew instantly that she was the female version of him. He was essentially saying, that's me. Genesis 2, 23 to 24. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. Through this blessing, God is giving the couple two mandates. In his book, Beyond Sex Roles, Gilbert Bilizekian calls the two mandates the dominion and the domestic mandates. Together, the couple would multiply and fill the earth. They were to form a family unit, bring children into the world together. Both are needed in parenting for their children. Both of their bodies were designed for that function. Together, they were to subdue and rule 
under the umbrella of God's overall rule. They were both given this authority over all other life forms. However, they were never given the right to rule over one another. So concerning the dominion mandate, the man and the woman were both commissioned to rule the world. Before there was sin, there was no hierarchy, rank, or preeminence of one over the other. Sadly, after sin enters the world, a different picture will emerge. So let's move on to Genesis 3 to understand what happens next. Previously, God had told the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. After the woman's creation, someone, either God or the man, told her about this commandment. Because what happens next demonstrates that the woman knew about it. Genesis chapter 3 finds the couple walking close to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When the serpent speaks to the woman. Now, before we go any further in the story, let's understand that the serpent is not a mere snake. After all, snakes do not talk. But this one appears to do so. Perhaps like a ventriloquist, the fallen angel Lucifer made the snake appear to talk. Or Satan may have possessed the snake. Either way, he was was deceptively speaking through the snake because the couple didn't know who they were really talking to. They thought they were just talking to a serpent. So the serpent asks, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now when the serpent said you, he used the plural form of the Hebrew word you. It is plural here in Genesis 1-3. It is also plural in verses 4 and 5. In the Hebrew, the snake is saying, you too, both of you. He wasn't speaking to just one person. Now, my family roots are in the Kentucky and West Virginia area. And the residents there have a way of communicating a plural you. That word is... Y'all, yeah, y'all. Satan uses the plural form for you, y'all, because they were both there. So right off, we find that the serpent misquotes God, doesn't he? And the way that the serpent misquotes him makes God's commandment virtually impossible for them to obey. After all, what would the couple eat if they couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Whereas God's true commandment placed a very small restriction on just one tree. So the woman speaks up to defend God, to correct the serpent. The serpent said to the woman, no, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Now, some have made the point that the woman added to God's commandment. 
by stating that they could not touch it. But that is an assumption. After all, the man could have added that piece of information when relating the the commandment to the woman. Or if God related the commandment to the woman, he might have added it at that time. Or, as the New Beacon Commentary notes, that since eating the fruit would involve touching it, then it may have been a way of saying, don't reach out to touch it and eat it. So however it came about, the commandment is still clear, and the end result will be the same. The serpent continues, Y'all will not certainly die. (laughs) The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and y'all will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is telling them three lies. First, they will not die, they will not gain that they will gain knowledge, and that they will be like God. In addition to that, it is obvious that Satan is building the case that God cannot be trusted. First, he states that God gave them an unreasonable commandment. And then he tells them that God has lied to them. He tells them that they won't die. He tells them that the reason that they have been lied to is because God wants to maintain the upper hand over them. God is keeping something good from them. Because if they ate the fruit, it would threaten his position and power over them. Therefore, Satan's argument and conclusion is that God does not rule in his creation's best interest. Instead, he's selfish. And they would be wise to look out for themselves and decide for themselves. Everything that Satan said was a lie. Which is why Jesus said regarding Lucifer in John 8:44, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and a father of lies. Lies are still Lucifer's main weapon he uses against us today. How many lies has he whispered into our ears? How many have we heard, read, and even believed? Lies about ourselves. Lies about God. But as Jesus said in John 8.32, it is the truth that will set us free. Notice that Lucifer does not say to our first parents, come follow me. I'm more powerful than God. No, he never challenged God's power, not in this account nor in any other account, because he knows who is more powerful. Instead, he attacked God's character. This was a character assassination. Genesis 3, 6 to 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, 
and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So both ate the fruit, but only one of them swallowed Satan's lies, hook, line, and sinker. The Apostle Paul states in 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, don't misunderstand the apostle as being heavy-handed with Eve on this point. In in the context of the letter to Timothy, a cult of Gnostic teachers were coming into the church, and they were teaching that Eve imparted secret knowledge to Adam. Now, if that were true, it would make her superior to Adam. Paul is countering this cult with truth. He's saying that that's totally untrue. The woman was deceived. She wasn't the source of any special knowledge. So after eating the fruit, the woman gave some to her husband who was with her, and without a word, he simply ate it. Just like that, he sinned. Since the man was not deceived by the serpent, the account begs the question, why did he do it? If he didn't believe Satan's lies about God, then why rebel? While that question has been widely speculated on, no one knows the answer because the Bible does not address it or leave us any clues. But one thing is obvious and true for both of them. Neither he nor the woman believed that the fruit would kill them. After all, who would eat something that they really believed was lethal? That would be suicide. So the woman believed that the serpents, what the serpent said about God's character, but neither of them believed what God had said. Neither believed that they would die if they ate the the fruit, so they ate it. Failing to believe what God says means that they lacked faith in their creator. Faith is very important, but not just faith in general, which can be misplaced. Instead, it is essential to place one's faith in God and in what he says. In fact, the scriptures say that without faith, it is impossible to please him. Therefore, these these two have turned away from the eternal one to follow the lead of a snake. Even more than that, the man and the woman are guilty of usurping God's position because it is God alone who determines what is right and wrong. He told them to avoid the fruit of the one tree, and he told them the consequence of death for disobeying. The tree was poisonous, but they ignored what he said and sinned. By doing so, they have taken upon themselves a godlike status by deciding for themselves and making a choice that went against their creators. And after eating the fruit, They were no wiser or more knowledgeable, meaning they didn't receive any secret or hidden information. What they did receive was an experiential understanding of sin 
guilt, and spiritual death. So they have eaten the fruit. And of course, God was watching the fruit. Now, they hear footsteps in the garden. It was a familiar sound that usually brought joy to their hearts. Clothed with leaves, they hide from each other, and now they hide in the trees from God. Sin has damaged both relationships. Genesis 3, 9 to 13. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Note that God did not come stomping into the garden. Instead, he came as a loving parent. How a loving parent would come to confront his wayward children. He asked them questions that gives them every opportunity to confess and repent. But neither did. Going on, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. For the following information concerning what God said next to the serpent, the man, and the woman, I am indebted to Dr. Joy Fleming and her book, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity. In response, God first deals with the serpent. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Because Satan spoke through the snake, God curses both the snake and Satan who used it. Now at that time, snakes might have had legs. Fossil remains seem to indicate that they did at one time. In fact, modern day boas and pythons still have hip bones and tiny spur grippers that are the remainder of the previous legs. However God accomplished it, his judgment was that the snakes would crawl on their bellies as a visual reminder to the couple of their disobedience. However, this is not just a curse on the literal snake. It is also a curse on the one behind the snake. Just as the literal snake has been thrown to the ground to eat the dust, God prophesies that Lucifer will also be thrown down to the ground, which comes true at the end of Satan's reign. Revelation 12.9 states the, the great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth. When that happens, Satan will no longer be free to move between the spiritual and physical realms. He will be confined to the earth, awaiting the last battle. Then God goes on to say to Lucifer, I will put enmity, which is hatred, between you and the woman, and, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God states that there will be a hatred between Lucifer and the woman because she will have a special child or offspring. 
This promised one, Jesus, will not come through the normal sexual union between a man and a woman. Instead, this seed will be hers alone. That is why God directs this towards the woman. The coming Savior for humankind will be her son. Of course, this prophecy was fulfilled through the Virgin Mary. In spite of their rebellion, God told them how he would fix things. He gave them hope. He pointed to the Savior, Jesus, who would come as the offspring of the woman. Furthermore, he said to the snake that Satan will strike and bruise the Savior's heel, which is a minor wound. In return, the woman's offspring will strike and bruise the snake's head, signifying a mortal wound. God gives them hope about the Savior who will come and conquer Satan. Therefore, womanhood becomes the vessel to bring the deliverer into the world. For that reason, Satan hates her and will pour out his wrath upon her. Such things in the world as sexual trafficking, pornography, domestic violence, rape, prostitution, patriarchy, unfair social restrictions, and the denial of political power are evidences of that hatred. In many other parts of the world, women experience no land rights, little to no human rights, forced marriages and unfair marriage laws, polygamy. They are denied in education and are the victims of honor-based violence and genital mutilation. It's almost overwhelming. These are all based upon the foundation of Satan's hatred that is influencing the world and that should break our hearts. How can mothers and daughters, wives and sisters be treated that way? How can they be treated like that by their own family members? Some of these effects of sin are so horrific, they go beyond the human sinful nature because they are diabolical in nature. We need to understand that Satan is the inspiration and the real enemy behind these atrocities. Remember that he hates women because God used the female gender to bring the Savior into the world. And this is very important. Whatever God uses in his plan, whomever he uses, Satan always hates. As such, there are two other vessels that God has used and who hate, Satan hates And all three of them are connected to Jesus. The first one, womanhood in general, is hated because she brought Jesus into the world. The second woman that God used was Israel, who was joined in covenant to God as his earthly wife at the foot of Mount Sinai. Read Ezekiel 16 for a very beautiful portrayal of that truth. Through Israel, God's son was born as a Jew. Jesus' mother was a Jew, a member of Israel. She She was a part of Israel, the metaphorical wife that foreshadowed the bride of Christ. Therefore, Jesus was not born illegitimately. He was born through a legitimate marriage between Israel and God. 
And because Jesus came supernaturally into the world through Mary, a Jew, Satan hates all Jews. It is racist, but it's even more than that. Because it is an attack against God's covenant people and his eternal plan and purpose. They are messing around. Those who hate the Jews are messing around with the apple of God's eye. You know, it is said that if you want proof that God exists, all you have to do is look at the Jewish people. No other people group has ever been expelled from their land, scattered around the world, and still maintained their separate identity. Even within all the countries of the world, they hated them and persecuted them for the past 2,000 years. Their survival is proof that God exists, because only he could do that. The third woman that Satan hates is the church, the spiritual bride of Christ. Now, that's you and me. And we know that Satan is not our friend. His objective is the same as with Adam and Eve. He wants to turn us away from God, and he can't, if he can't do that, then he'll attack us. He wants to turn us away. The global persecution and martyrdom of Christians around the world today is a well-kept secret that continues to escalate. More Christians have died in the last hundred years than all the Christians that have been martyred for the past 1,900 years all added together. Unbelievable. How do we know that this hatred against the three women is from a demonic origin? Couldn't it just be the result of human sinfulness and nothing more? We know that it is demonic because God said so. Secondly, consider how out of proportion the hatefulness is in relationship to the rest of humanity. We know because of the unreasonableness of the hatred toward each woman and her connection to Christ. We also know because of how widespread the hatred exists, both globally and throughout time. All of this points directly to a sustaining demonic source. Therefore, Satan hates whatever and whomever God uses. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he, Jesus Christ, will crush your head, and you will strike his hill. After cursing the serpent, God goes on to the woman to say, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, labor you will give birth to children. Take note of this. It is important. Unlike God's previous conversation with the snake, God does not begin by telling the woman, because you have. Nor does he mention a curse like he did in his conversation with the snake. Therefore, what he is saying to her is not a curse, because no curse was ever mentioned. And we can't put words in God's mouth, can we? However, the way that some of the words have been translated might make you think that's what's happening. Let's look at slide 19 and consider the way that the passage has been translated. 
There are significant differences between how some of the translations translate this in Genesis 3.16. For example, compare the New American Standard Bible. One of the many typical translations, too, will compare it to the King James Version. In Genesis 3.16, the New American Standard, God multiplies one thing, the woman's pain in childbirth. In the King James, though, he multiplies two things, her painful toil of the ground and her conception. The New American Standard states, I will greatly multiply your pain. The pain there is the Hebrew word itzabon. In childbirth, heron is childbirth, translated here as childbirth. However, in the King James, it translates differently. I will great, greatly multiply thy sorrow, itzabon, and thy conception, heron. Both the New American Standard and the King James translate the Hebrew word itzabon similarly as pain and sorrow. However, itzabon refers specifically to a special type of sorrow. It's the sorrow that comes from uh, painful laboring of the ground. It is not pain in general. It does not mean just general pain. Instead, it is a particular type of pain. It only describes the painful toil of the ground. It's used only three times in the Bible. And it's never used to describe any other type of pain or sorrow, such as childbirth. So God begins by saying that he will multiply her sorrowful labor of the ground. By God telling her that, he's actually giving her a preview about what he's going to say next to Adam. Note that the Hebrew word heron does mean conception. Heron never refers to childbirth. That's important. Instead, the Hebrew word for childbirth is yalad. So translations like the New American Standard combine the painful toil of the ground, itzabun, with conception, heron uniting two unrelated things into one misfit, painful childbirth, creating the single thought that God purposefully increased the woman's pain in childbirth. In comparison, the King James correctly separates the two things that God is multiplying, sorrowful labor of the ground, Isabon, and the woman's conception rate, Haran. By addressing her conception rate, God ties into his previous conversation with the serpent. Here, God picks up a thread from what he said to the serpent. He told the serpent about the woman's promised offspring. And now he tells the woman that in in addition to producing the promised child, she will have many conceptions. By multiplying her fruitfulness, we see God's love demonstrated. He is actually helping the couple. Since humans are now subject to death, their childbirth rate will need to overcome such things as war, famine, and disease. Without a higher conception rate, the human race could easily become extinct. God is telling the woman two things. He will greatly multiply her sorrow that comes from toiling the ground because God is going to curse the ground next when he talks to Adam. 
And at this point, God is letting the woman know that he is, what he's going to say to Adam applies to her too. It's a spoiler alert. He will multiply her sorrow and toiling because when he turns next to speak to Adam, he will curse the ground. And that cursing will impact both her and all future generations. You know, when I was younger, I remember wondering about this verse. Why weren't women included in the painful toil of the ground? Because all through history, women have had toil of the ground. They've had to toil it for food. And many still do around the world today. In my own family, my great-great-grandmother and the generations before her would work alongside their husbands in the fields. And that's what this verse is saying. This is often misunderstood by some translators that make it appear that the woman is being punished with additional pain. Instead, the triune God is actually ensuring human survival by helping them to fulfill his original blessing to them, be fruitful and multiply. Therefore, instead of punishing the woman, God is demonstrating his love for both of them, for the couple, and that fact is often missed entirely in some translations. Next, God says to the woman two things that will specifically touch her life as consequences of a fallen world. This is a heads up for her. After telling her that he will multiply her sorrow in working with the soil and multiply her conceptions, he talks about childbirth. He says, with pain you will bring forth children. Now this Hebrew word for pain is different than itzabon. The Hebrew word used here is esip. It just simply means pain in general. Our bodies were subjected to death, and death usually comes with pain. Now in their dying bodies, God tells the woman, in pain you will give birth. He is letting her know that pain will also touch her unique role as childbearer. Without being told, she may never expect that something so wonderful as bringing life into the world would be associated with pain. If she did not know this, Perhaps later when giving birth, she might misunderstand and think that she is dying. God did not increase increase her pain. It was just a natural consequence that he is informing her about. Next, God says, yet your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Again, God is informing her of another consequence. He is not mandating man's rulership over her but rather he is prophesying a sad future. He's not saying the man's the boss now. God isn't telling her, nor does he tell the man to dominate her. And so in summary, the woman is told that God will increase her sorrow from toiling the soil. God will increase her conceptions. In addition, God informs her of the following consequences of living in a fallen world such as pain in childbirth and being subjugated. Then God said to the man, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, it's a bone. You will eat of it all the days of your life. 
Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There are similarities between God's speech to the serpent and his speech to the man. Both begin with the words, because you have and later on are followed with the word cursed. At first, the man must have held his breath, tense, every muscle in his body tense, when God started by saying, because you have. Those words were the same words that he said to the serpent right before he cursed it. The man must have expected to be cursed too. No doubt he was bracing himself for a blow, but that is not what happened. God did not hit him with a curse. Instead, God cursed the elements from which the man was made. So God only gave two curses. They were to the serpent and to the ground. Amazingly, neither the man nor the woman were cursed. This demonstrates God's great love for us He did not curse us. For some reason, I think most people think that God did curse humanity. I know I did for many years. Instead, the truth is, he cursed the ground from which the man was made. Now note this, because it's very important. If he had cursed the man, then all of us would be cursed. All of us. Because Adam was the head, meaning he's the source of all of us, of all of humanity. And if he were cursed, then all of us would have been cursed. All of us would have been born into the world cursed. What a horrible thought. But thank God that is not true. Instead, we are born into the world loved by God. It is interesting that God placed the curse on the ground because it relates to the production of food for eating. The word eating ties back to the original temptation by the serpent. And eating the forbidden fruit was the sin committed by both the man and the woman. As a consequence, the cursed snake will now eat dust from which the man was made and to which he will return. The man will eat in sorrow and on the ground and will endure this curse on the ground and the serpent will remain all the days of their lives until God removes it in the new creation. Appropriately, the consequences match the violation. And those consequences were merciful. What does that mean? What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserved far worse, but because of God's great love, he did not give us what we deserved. Instead, right from the start, he prepared a way of restoration for us that would entail the birth of the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus who came and died for us. Today we are going to close 
the service by remembering God's incredible love for us through the sacrament of communion. Let's pray. Father God, we reject the lies of Satan. We praise and put our trust in you. We know that you are a great and good God, full of compassion and mercy, who loves us beyond measure. We know that the one who walked in the garden with our first parents is the same one who came to die for us and is present among us today through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask you to draw us closer to you. And if we have sinned, we bring those things to mind now. We confess those sins to you and ask for your forgiveness based upon Jesus' death on the cross. Cleanse our hearts and create a new heart within us. Restore us and fill us with your spirit. We also ask that you bless these elements. May they be a means of grace, drawing us ever closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says that we should bless one another. So I'm going to leave you with a blessing today. It's actually a promise from God. Where the God of peace will one day crush Satan under our feet. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.